Stand with me and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, if you will. Luke chapter 14. And if you've got your smartphone with you, just uh, as Miss Claire said, she had a dumb phone. But uh, Luke chapter 14, and uh, we're going to finish the service with a communion time, and we'll alert you when we get to that. Luke 14, beginning with verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come. Make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. May God bless his word. You may be seated. So there's the parable of the great banquet. Anybody have that at the start of that division? You know, the Bible has these neat little places to let you know what you're about to read. So what is this about? Every parable is not just a story. It's an illustration of something else. It's pointing to something else. And you can't get the full measure of verses 15 through 24 without knowing what's going on there. What is the context there? You have to go back to the start of the chapter, and I'm not... I'm going to spare you reading the first 14 verses. But what I want to take you through is follow me as I set the framework in which why did Jesus give this story? And what was, what's this story about? What was he trying to tell the people through this story? There's always a message in his parables. The chapter starts out that saying Jesus is a guest at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And uh, they're there on Sabbath for a Sabbath meal, which was probably the evening meal, which is the main meal in their culture. So on the Sabbath, Jesus is a guest in this home of a prominent Pharisee. And I, I believe the, I think we can say the invitation, if you read verses 1, 2, and you're getting on into it, I believe you can come to the conclusion that Jesus was not invited as a guest because they admired him or they wanted to know what he thought about something. They could ask him questions. Because 
real early in this story, in this account, he's under the watch of these people. They're watching him closely. He's invited there to see if he's going to do something wrong so they can come against him as they have all through his ministry. So it's obviously he's not there just because they have an affinity toward hearing what he had to say. And in front of him, there is this man who has a case of dropsy. How about that? Dropsy. Now, I have a a new administrative assistant, voluntary researcher for me. Doesn't have, I don't have to pay her. Well, in, in a way, I do have to pay her. Her name is Siri. A lot of people here don't know who I'm talking about. But uh, let, me, let me just test Siri for you here. What does the word dropsy in the Bible mean? Checking my sources. Here's what I found on the web for what does the word dropsy in the Bible mean. And there it is. You go to it and it gives you the definition of dropsy. Now I've asked her if she knows the Lord and she... she, And, I, and I've asked her different questions about God, and she, I think she says that's out of her jurisdiction or that's out of her knowledge. <laughs> but, it go, I mean, what I'm telling you is, if you've got a question about what something in the Bible means, shame on you for not finding it out. Because we are without excuse today. There's entire libraries that you used to have to go through. When I was doing some studying at Southeastern in a master's of ministry degree, I was over at one of the libraries, and, and you just have to engulf yourself in books and resources, and it's become so digitized now, you can just like go to any of the resources I used to have to pull off a shelf and research. And Dropsy has some interesting um, definitions to it uh, and as it's defined the arms and leg are distended how about that anyone here know what distended besides uh, nurses distended means swollen who said swollen I, I don't have a prize for you today it's um and, and, and it gives a reason why this condition, it's uh, the arms and the extremities are swollen. Sometimes the stomach is swollen. It's uh, usually caused by frequent exposure to malaria that affects the liver functions, the cardiac functions, the renal functions. And this person is obviously swollen and there's no cure for it. So what is a person doing with swollen, a swollen body? Obviously, this This guy is in the house with the prominent Pharisee, with everybody else, and he's in front of Jesus. Now, it doesn't say this, but I'm just going to take some liberty. I believe they just found somebody. (laughs) Say, you look really sick. We need you you today to come over to so-and-so's house, 
because we, 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 we just got a dinner we're doing. And he's planted right in front of Jesus. If you read the chapter, it says he's right in front of Jesus. And the reason I believe he's put there and Jesus knows he's put there, the first thing Christ asks the Pharisee host and the others is what? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Isn't it interesting he added the negative there? Meaning, is it more lawful not to heal than to heal? And their answer was silence. Because look how he put it. He gave them two options. Is it more lawful not to heal on the Sabbath than to heal? And they are silent. And it says that Jesus takes hold of him. I believe I'm, I'm accurate with the wording. I'm not reading it verbatim. Jesus took hold of him, and, it, and the word is actually, he, he grabbed him, swollen limbs, probably a grotesque-looking person, and as he held him, the man was healed instantly. And the reason I believe he, he was just a plant, he was, it was a setup, is it says, and Jesus sent him off, sent him out of the house. And then Jesus asked, all, we're not even near the parable yet. Jesus asked him another question about the law. He says, is it lawful, is it not lawful on the Sabbath for you to pull your own son or an ox out of the well on the Sabbath day? And their answer was silence. Does it ever make you wonder what's with these people? That they don't have an answer for either one of those questions? Did people matter to them? It looks as if they would say, well, if it was my son, there was an answer. It wasn't that there wasn't an answer. There was an answer at least to the second question. They were allowed to do things like that on the Sabbath. They just took exception to him doing that kind of ministry on the Sabbath. And then Jesus gets, I'm not even near the parable yet. Then Jesus gets the real root of what's going on there. And this parable is going to mean a lot more to you when you see what he's looking at and the table he's looking at and the people around this table. He sees and he notices when they started gathering around the table that there were people jockeying for position. There were people looking to sit at the more prominent places at the table. That none of us do that. And none of us want to be at the front of the line, do we? Or get the closest parking space to Walmart. But he's looking at these people and they're, they're there and they're, they're trying to get to the best place. And he begins to talk to them about that. And he says, listen, when... When, you, uh, when you're invited to a wedding feast, and I'm, I'm re- this is all part of the first part of this chapter. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit at the most honored place at the table because someone may come after you that's more distinguished than you, and the host of that wedding will come to you and say, you, you've got to get up and give your seat to this person. 
and then you're going to be humiliated. And people who want to be at the best spot do not like humiliation. So he says, listen, resist that tendency, and if you will go and, and find a lesser place to sit and sit there, maybe no one else is going to come to sit at the honored place, and they will come and get you. So why don't you move up here to where we're at? And Jesus gives a principle in verse 13. Are you there? Jay Barker wrote a book called In Due Time. Anybody remember that book? Well, Wayne Atchison actually wrote the book. But it was about Jay Barker's life as a quarterback and as a Christian in that environment in due time. And he borrowed it from another passage, but it's the same principle. Whoever exalts himself will be... Now, it says humbled, but you could put humiliated, which is a a kin word to it. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted... And then he gets to verse 14 when this person sitting at the table hears this. And Jesus says, and you will be blessed if, if you will do this kind of living. You will be blessed, although the people cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the dead. What he told him, he says, when you have a feast, don't invite your friends, don't invite your family, don't invite your wealthy neighbors. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, because when they show up to eat, they can't repay you. They can't treat you back what you've treated them to. And Jesus says, you will be blessed if you do, like, if you do it that way. Although they cannot repay you, you'll re- be repaid at the resurrection. Now stop right there. Does this put a little bit of a different tone on the parable? when he gets to this, and this is what's really going on, it's not about this table at this Pharisee's house. It's about the table of God. It's about the end time. It's about the resurrection of the righteous. And this guy gets so stirred in verse 15, he just says, well, blessed is the person who eats in the feast of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus begins the parable. This provokes someone to say, yeah, it is about the resurrection of the righteous. And blessed is the person who sits at that table. And what Jesus gives was for those people sitting at that table. This parable was for them. Now, track this with me a little bit. I've already read it. A man was preparing a great banquet And it sent out invitations to maybe his friends in the context of the parable. These were people he had already sent out invitations. They had been invited. And when he got the banquet ready, he told his servant to go out and alert them that the banquet was ready. They can come on. They're ready to start. And that's where you find the response. Now, I think lost in this a little bit... Let me just put this question to you. Where do you fit in this parable? Can you find where you fit? I want you to think about that as as we kind of finish this up on this parable. Because we're in this parable. We're somewhere in this parable. And he's saying to them, 
that when this man had this great banquet and he got it all ready, he said to his servant, what is lost here, someone gave me a book this week about the gospel according to Jesus by John MacArthur. And I started reading it. I thought, wow. Even the preface was, and the word slave is here, doulos. Now, Jesus could have used the word for servant, but he used the word for slave, meaning that the master's instructions were not conditional and were not optional. And we're called bond servants or slaves for Christ. Are you in the parable? Of course you're in the parable. There's places in the parable that we don't want to be, right? We don't want to be those making excuses, right? Already invited, already acquainted with the man preparing the great banquet, already have an invitation, and when it comes time to celebrate, they got other things they're doing. And it sounds like these are all legitimate excuses. Buying a piece of property, buying some oxen, just got married, I don't know why you can't go to a banquet after you just got married. That seems like that would be a a good way to start your marriage is go to a banquet. But all of them had a reason why they they were not going to come to the banquet. And when the master, the owner of the house, heard from his slave that we went out and told him and, and they're not coming. And then he says, go out into the city and find the poor the lame, the crippled, the blind, go out and find all of those that you can find and tell them to come on. We got a banquet. And he said, well, we've already done that. We still got room. Whoa, stop right there. I think that's where we're at today. There's still room. There's still room. It's like the song, there's room at the cross for you. There's still room And as long as there's still room, we're waiting for the banquet to start. It wasn't about two or three Sundays ago that Brother Davis was in the class, and I happened to be in this class that morning. And he asked something about, are you excited about the return of Jesus? Most of the obvious responses were, and people said that, yes. And I thought about that. For a few minutes. I was sitting back there, I, th- I thought about that. I thought about, is this a compelling principle to me? Is this a, com- a compelling truth to me? Do I really believe that Jesus could come today? Do I really harbor that anticipation in my soul? If I don't, then I'm in the parable. I'm those sitting around the table feeling like I belong there, but I don't have to do what the master tells me to do. I don't have to recognize the lordship of Jesus. I don't have to recognize the great commission. I don't have to care about the lost. But if I am consumed with the coming of the Lord, shouldn't that do something in me? 
shouldn't that compel me? And that gets me to the last part of that parable. When he tells them, and, and it reads a little different in the NIV, he says, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in. King James says, compel them. That my house will be full. King James says, go out and compel them, which really is make them, force them, necessitate them, press them, use all means possible to get them into this banquet. Where's the compelling voice today? Where is the compelling believer? Where's the entreaty? Where's the pressing? Where's the boldness? Where's the unction of God deep in our souls? Now, you don't have to watch War Room, but it'll do you some good if you did. And you watch a year-long weather reports, and they won't touch you like this will. Because we're not fighting for the loss. The mourner's bench years ago, we like to, you know, go back in memory. The mourner's bench was not a place that sinners wept their way to salvation. It was identified because people in the church wept for them. They came and wept at the altar for them. They were concerned that they would miss God and miss eternity with God. And the unction in their souls compelled them to be compellers. The unction of God deep in their lives. And this is what I think is missing in the Western church in America. Is we're too comfortable. We have our homes and we have our means and we have everything we need. We have so many options as to what we're going to eat the day after service. We just... We just, we don't, have, we don't have a pressing in us about the darkness of the times that we live in. We can watch the news and get a little troubled for, about it for a little while, but then we go back to our own routines. And if there's anything I praise as God, not just let us momentarily be stirred out of our routines, but let us be permanently stirred out of our routines. You see, some are sitting at the table because of their status, Because of their position and what they can gain from it. I got to share the gospel with, with a lady. I was, I was sending a note uh, th- Saturday, I think it was, or Friday. Sending a note Friday. And I tell you what, this place has been open at 6 o'clock every morning this week for prayer. Every morning. Because I know Larry and I have opened it up every morning for 6 o'clock. Seeking God and praying over every one of you in this room every day by name. Asking God to do something mighty in your life. And he said, well, you know, you probably don't have my name because I'm a guest. Well, you got prayed over this morning. We just didn't know your name. That God would touch your life and change your life for his purposes. 
But I was called, and this is what the text says. My, my mother, it's a, it's a young lady that doesn't attend here anymore. She's in South Alabama. My mother has just been diagnosed with cancer all through her system, all through her body. And she's in room such and such at DCH, and she wants a pastor to come and talk to her to make sure she's ready. And I went up there. I didn't have to talk to her. She was ready. She, she know, I, I knew her. She knew me. She knew of me. She hugged me and thanked me. She sat down on her bed and, and started saying, I've went every way. I've tried every way but the right way. And I've straddled the fence too long in my life. I'm ready for a change. I, I'm not even having to say anything. But I remember saying this to her. God's gift of salvation is a gift and you can't earn any part of it and there's nothing you can add to him. He can only add to you. This salvation that he brings to us doesn't add anything. He is all complete in himself. We can't add anything to his joy, to his delight, to his person. We are the ones who receive the abundance of God in this great salvation. And all I said is, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you ready to call? She said, I'm ready. And I said, will you call? And she called on the Lord. This is what this parable is all about, is that God is looking, you know, she, she looked at me and she says, I've been in, most of my life, nobody's wanted to be around me. And nobody's wanted me. And I said, but God wants you. And God loves you. And this is why this, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these people can add nothing to anyone's life. You just bring them in and feed them. And he says, but you will be paid one day. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The compelling voice. I'll tell you where the compelling voice is. The compelling voice is in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, the Spirit has been sent into this world. The King James says to reprove, but it's actually the word to convict, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is already here. And what? What the Holy Spirit is waiting is for you to partner with him. You don't have to become a compelling voice. You have to step into the compelling voice. And when the Holy Spirit has a liberty in our lives where he's not here for just when we want him or need him, but when we totally surrender to the purpose of God, he will compel you to compel others. And until then, we're no better than the Pharisees. We show up for feasts when it's there, and we walk away, and we have absolutely no interest in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the reality of it is we're in that parable because that's exactly how we all are before we come to Jesus, is we're a mess, and only he can save us. We're going to step into communion time right now, and I'm going to tell you how this is going to work. It's going to be any different than any communion we've ever done here. How's that?
we're going to have four different places for you to come and get the cup and the bread, which is the body and blood of Jesus. And what we're going to do today is that we're going to serve everyone in this room communion that wants to have communion. We're also going to anoint you. And we're going to believe God for 2016 to be a year of health, a year of God's power, a year of his wisdom, a year of him using you and doing great things in your life. I take that. I take that kind of 2016. And I'm, you know, my kid's age bothers me more than my age. My son turned 40. He'll turn 41 in a few days. Wow. 41. But I feel that I am not even scratching the surface of what God has for me. I'm so eager for what he has for me.